let's make no mistakes about this. Friedrich Flick had used tens and tens of thousands of forced enslaved laborers in his steel, coal, and weapons conglomerate. But he never achieved to have a, a sub-concentration camp at one of his factory complexes, or at least not that it had become known today. Gunter Quant did at his battery factories. Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre did at the Volkswagen factory complex. And also the Utkers did a joint venture where there was a sub-concentration camp to involve with the building of that factory. It was mainly, yeah, yeah, Friedrich Flick actually tried to get a sub-concentration camp, you know, not for lack of trying, Bill, you know, I mean, he tried, he, he tried to get it, but it, it, it somehow never, it never happened, even though, you know, he, he controlled the largest privately held seal coal and weapons conglomerate in, um, in Nazi Germany. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHS Tours at the top of the hour. Also on FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be speaking with David DeYoung. He is a journalist and author who has just published his first book, Nazi Billionaires. He spent four years reporting from Berlin while researching and writing this book, and he previously covered European banking and finance from Amsterdam and hidden wealth in billionaires' fortunes from New York for Bloomsburg News. His work has also appeared on New York Times, Wall Street Journals, and a lot more. So today, we're going to talk about his book, Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. Don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, review, share the show. Every little bit helps. You go to podcasttheway.com for more information. Again, that's podcasttheway.com. But what made you want to write about this topic? Sure, I mean... You know, the motivation more had to do with the fact that as a financial journalist, I found, you know, these massive consumer facing brands like BMW and, and Volkswagen and Porsche, you know, blatantly whitewashing their the, the histories of their founders, where they were celebrating their business successes, but through, you know, global philanthropic foundations, media prizes, corporate headquarters but leaving out their war crimes. And I think, you know, one can only learn from history by being transparent about the good and the both uh, and the bad. And if you're not, you know, if you, if you only show the good, you know, then, then it's just a whitewash, you know, you, you're not, you're not really showing anything. I know there's a saying German engineering when it comes to cars, but now it seems like every car company from Germany has this history to it. Yeah. I mean, it is it is ironic that especially post-war you see really these companies and these families really focusing on um, you know all kind of putting their their because most of the families I write about during the Third Reich with the exception of the Porsche Pierre family who of course Ferdinand Porsche designed the Volkswagen his son Ferry Porsche designed the first Porsche sports car 
you know, they're the only ones that already controlled uh, or were already in the car making business um, during the Nazi era. But the other main families are right about the Quans, two members of the family today controlled BMW or the Flicks, um, where you have two, you know, we previously controlled Daimler-Benz. They only got to uh, control these car, these car companies uh, during the economic miracle of Germ- of West Germany in the 1950s and 60s. When do you say that? Do you mean the booming economy that came from the war? Or where is it because of their influence with the Nazi party? No, no, no. So this is after the World War II ends and, and, and West Germany is established. And, you know, you have this boom of the 1950s where, you know, your Korean War starts and, and, Amer- and, and you know, first Harry Truman and then Ike Eisenhower enact the War Production Act. And West Germany is is kind of fills that gap as the one uh you know the, the key western industrialized nation that can fill the gap at consumer goods because all the american factories are producing weapons for the korean war gotcha and bringing it back when you mentioned volkswagen and porsche one thing i found mm-hmm. interesting enough that i tweeted hitler he said that there are millions of deficient hard-working fellow citizens that can't afford a car so that was the reason that he forced porsche to make volkswagen Although turns out that wasn't the exact reason why he had Volkswagen made. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Fernand Porsche. First of all, Fernand Porsche is the one who convinced Hitler to put the Volkswagen into production. Really? Um, and once, well, pardon, you're right. It was Hitler who, who after Porsche, sent the idea ID to Hitler for the Volkswagen. Hitler got convinced of it and, and tasked Ferdinand Porsche to construct the Volkswagen. But in the end, it was it was Ferdinand Porsche who in 1936 convinced then Hitler with his prototypes to put the Volkswagen into production. So that's one aspect. And then I thought Hitler was very demanding about Volkswagen, like super, very demanding, very demanding. No, you're completely okay. right. But of course, had had Ferdinand Porsche failed in his prototypes. You know, which it cost him a lot of money and a lot of political capital. Um, he could have, you know, somebody else could have made the Volkswagen. You know, yeah. yeah and that's so he where... still after after Hitler tasked him, tasked Ferdinand Porsche with constructing the Volkswagen, he still had to, you know, design the prototype and then convince Hitler to put that pro- prototype into production. So it was a, you know, it was a two way, it was a two way street. Not only um, that, didn't he have to make it like suit the Volkswagen super cheap? Like I want to say under a thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Redi- yeah. So he had this bizarre, Hitler had this bizarre idea where he saw Henry Ford, which you know Henry Ford, as 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 you may know, was this virulent anti-Semite. You know, loved Hitler, and he Hitler got this idea. You know, was loved him, loved Henry Ford right back, and had this idea of that Henry Ford, you know, was making Ford cars from in from River Rouge in, in Detroit for a thousand bucks and that yeah. that should be the highest price for like a thousand reichsmark for any uh volkswagen that was to be produced but of course in the end the volkswagen only 650 like the people's car never reached the people or at least not during the nazi era only 650 people uh of um you know only 650 cars uh, were made uh, or Beatles or what later became known as the Volkswagen Beetle were made during the Third Reich and of course those 
those 650 only went to Nazi elite, didn't go to the common folk. So the Volkswagen it, Beetle, that was the one that was used for this war? No, no, it wasn't used for the war. It was just used as a car. Oh, okay. You know, there were other things that they produced in the Volkswagen factory complex, which were huge. And, I yeah. have to double check because I can't picture like World War II soldiers in this little punch buggy. No, exactly. Yes. With military weapons. Okay, but the proto- yeah, yeah, you're totally right. But the prototypes they, they, they um, designed, which were the, so which, which Porsche designed, like the military wagons, which is the, 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 the swimming car, and um, and the Kubelwagen, what's the English translation again? The cube car. They were used very extensively uh, by by the Wehrmacht, by the by the by Nazi Germany's army. Gotcha. And Henry Ford, I didn't know that part of him that he was a very anti-Semitic. Were there other like, did he help the Nazis in a way, or were there more American no. companies? No. None of that. No, I mean there were there were American companies involved with, with with the you know General Motors through its subsidiary Opel was you know was was involved in the Third Reich and IBM of course famously you know tabulated you know many of the of of, of you know the extermination that happened the Holocaust that happened tabulated much of the figures and the belongings of those that were murdered the six million that were murdered in the Holocaust. Gotcha. When it comes to Porsche, he um, helped create Volkswagen which became this vehicle used for the military. Was there any other ways Porsche helped Germany? Because early on, the I misread your book where I thought it was he was almost forced by Hitler, but then I realized, oh, no, he's very pro-Nazi. He's very on board. I mean, he was a technocrat. You know, he, he didn't care which political... He didn't care about politics. He didn't care about which political regime he was working with. You know, he just wanted to. He Was just that the thing to with make most of these people? Yeah, most of these people were opportunists. You know, there were Nazi ideologues. I mean, a couple of the families, the five families, are right about some were ideologues, but most were just, you know, were just opportunists who, who wanted to profit by any way, any means necessary from from the um, from you know from the Hitler regime from Hitler's regime. You know, Ferdinand Porsche initially wanted to work with Stalin with, with the Stalinist regime, or was asked to work by Joseph Stalin the Stalin regime in the Soviet Union to design cars for them. He really seriously considered that offer. You know, then 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 Hitler threw him at the lifeline because the Porsche car design company was in dire straits at that point. But after the war, you know, he was approached by the French uh, communist minister of industry and he was willing to work with him again. So, you know, Ferdinand Porsche didn't really care about political ideology. He just wanted to make his designs. He wanted to be, you know, we, yeah, he didn't care for whether that was a murderous regime, a democratic regime, it, it didn't it didn't really matter to them. And before talking about some of the other families that are talked about in the book too, uh, I'm gonna say the last name wrong. I feel like how do you say the um Quant family? Quant? Yeah, Quant, Quant. Yeah. Okay, I got it right. I have Quant. It's like a quant, <laughs> it's like quantitative, Quant. <laughs> yeah, the um Quant family or uh, the grandson of Gunther. He um argues that Gunther Quant had to. Like he was a businessman, he just had to keep making money. He had to keep people having jobs. Is there any merit to that argument? No, absolutely not. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is some merit to that argument. Of course, sure, he was a business owner, but he could have left. You know, if he didn't like the regime, he could have could have left. You know, some one fa- famous industrialist, Fritz Thiessen, a steel mogul, was one of Hitler's earliest backers, and ended up fleeing Nazi Germany after they invaded Poland. 
you know, you ended up in a concentration camp. But still, you know, you had the opportunity to leave if you really wanted to. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, they were, they were, these men were being held hostage. They made an explicit decision to fall in line and to contribute to the Nazi regime and to become complicit in the crimes of the Nazi regime. Yeah, they pretty much picked, like, money over man, kind of. Exactly. They picked money over morality, which, you know, you see every day, then, <laughs> now, and, you know, throughout history. So to talk about someone like what they did or so the Quant family, why did you decide to start the book by addressing that family? I mean, they control BMW, two of the heirs of the Quant families control BMW today. So they're still Germany's in many ways, Europe's and to, to an extent the world, some of the world's most powerful business families today. Um, and they're huge political donors as well. And so, you know, and, and they... They're Germany's wealthiest families, so I thought, you know, if you write a book called Nazi Billionaires, and and <laughs> and they also had the most incredible story, I think, because of the two branches, one that is related to Magda Goebbels and the other one that controls BMW. Gotcha. So how did they grow their wealth in the first place? Like, how did they reach that point? Like, you mean pre-Nazi? Uh... I guess pre-Nazi to Nazi. Like, how did they go? Were they already a... Was the family yeah, already... Yeah, sure. Making... So, I mean, uh, all the... All the of the five families I write about in the book, you know, four were already extremely wealthy by the time the, you know, by the time Hitler seized power. And it was only the Porsche Pierre family, which we just discussed, the one that controls the Volkswagen group today, and that which co-founded Porsche and Volkswagen. And also today controls Bentley, Audi, Seat, Skoda, Lamborghini. Um, you know, they really laid the foundation for their wealth during the Third Reich. The other four families I write about were all already extre extremely wealthy prior to Hitler seizing power. The Quants, you know, they controlled during the during the Weimar Republic, during the hyperinflation era. They, Günther Quant, the, the, the family patriarch got in control of a massive battery, global battery company called AFA, which today is Varta, which produces the batteries for uh, the airports. And, yeah. and, um, and DWM, which is a massive weapons manufacturer. Do they, a lot of these companies change their names? Was that publicity reasons or was it just getting bought out or changing? It, interesting, yeah. Yeah, part of it was you know either they didn't want to associate themselves anymore with the with the nazi regime like or they did want to associate themselves with the nazi regime and didn't want to associate themselves anymore after the war you know all kinds of reasons but yeah you're right a lot of their rebranding has to also do with like kind of a historical connotations to to with the past all right so someone like the meat and bones yeah they uh, worked with the nazis or they worked with hitler what made them bad? Like, what made them? What did they do in particular that can right, be seen as right. horrific? So, like, after Hitler seized power in 1933, you know, you have he promises. I mean, the industrialists and the financiers, German industrialists and financiers, who initially, you know, they didn't really. They were conservative. They were like establishment, you know, establishment conservatives. They didn't really want to wanted to. They weren't. They, they weren't. Nazi party members or like they weren't convinced Nazis ideologues for the most part. Right. Yeah. So, but they, you know, the Weimar Republic was 14 years of, of volatility between 
the start of the for, for, between the end of World War One, which held the end of the German Empire until in 1918, till uh, you know the moment Hitler seized power in um, in January 1933, and it was enormous economic and political upheaval during the Weimar Republic. It was also a very lucrative time for many industrialists and and um, and financiers because they got to you know get in control of the companies that that they you know they they really i would say laid the foundation for their wealth during the weimar republic i mean they were they came from wealthy families during the german empire but they really became rich during the weimar republic so once hitler seizes power in 1933 you know you have this they all fall in line because hitler initially you know he he, he executes this massive rearmament plan which initially is secret and then he goes public with in 1935. So you had billions and billions flowing into the coffers of these industrialists and their companies. They retooled their steel and industrialist companies to, to produce weapons. So that was the first step. Then in 1935, after the initiation of, or after the implementation of the Nuremberg race laws, you know, you get the expropriation of, of, of Jewish owned assets or like of Jewish men and women and their belongings initially in Nazi Germany, and which was this process called Aryanization, which denoted the, you know, the removal of a Jewish, like the removal of ownership from, or the removal of, I would say, of the Jewish element from any, oh, from any asset. Mm-hmm. So they, 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 that's, you know, another way, is where, and that's really when it slides into criminality, into criminal behavior, even those these transactions, these business transactions, have the veneer of a regular business transaction, and they, you know, they, they really started their criminal behavior there because producing weapons per per se is not criminal, right? But mm-hmm. but robbing, but buying assets far under the market value, coercing people, individuals to give up to to sell their companies or or give up their livelihoods, you know, that's criminal behavior. And of course, this started with the veneer of a business transaction, and then by the end of the 1930s, went to the outright expropriation and the stealing of people's companies and and assets. Of course, with 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 Jewish men and women, it was in Nazi Germany. Of course, once World War II started, it happened also with with you know with 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 people and their businesses in in just occupied territories. People who were not Jewish, but who lived in France or Netherlands or Poland or wherever. And, yeah. and 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 you know the Nazi regime or an affiliated businessman wanted to, that company and, and just took it. Um, and then of course the third aspect is the mass use of force and slave labor. Of course, tens of millions of 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 men, women, and and unfortunately also children were deported into uh, Nazi Germany, uh, um, f- especially um, from 1941 onwards, when of course you had most German men at the front and you had a huge labor shortage in uh in the german reich and they would you know round up people and deport them and you know millions and millions and millions ended up being deported uh and coerced or even enslaved um uh to you know to be used in german factories and mines so those are the three aspects of of criminality gotcha i want to ask about that third one in a minute but when uh forcing these other businesses out of business that makes me think of today how um amazon they'll 
intentionally sell a product at a way that they'll lose money just so people buy their product, put this other company out of business, and then they could either buy it or just, you know, mark their price back up once they're out of business. Was it that sort of same idea with the uh, Nazi party and these companies where they just make the prices so they could benefit more and force the other ones out of business? Or was it more direct where they just go to that business and say, hey, you're you're gone, you're cut off? No, I mean, it was it was it was a combination of both. You know, they would a company or the regime or affiliated or companies affiliated with the regime or subsidiaries. So, you know, a business which is owned by 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 Jewish businessman or Jewish business family, and they would start exerting pressure to sell. Of course, you know, there were all these laws being enacted that were also disenfranchising uh, Jewish people in Germany, right? So they start wrapping up that persecution and people also wanted to flee. You know, they, they wanted to leave the country because they were fearing for their safeties. So part of it was coercion, you know, was like extortion on the on the side of these German businessmen and, and the Nazi regime. The other part of it was just also just being forced to sell because they, these families wanted to leave. I feel like I'm going to get the saying wrong. I think it goes, it's the iron or the lead or like some mobster used to say, where you could either take the cash or you could take the bullet. Yeah, yeah. Bill, you're, that's, you know, you, unfortunately, you put it very well. So then that third process or the third step of it, one thing that came to mind was Frederick Flick. And he yeah. was known for having like a real concentration camp for his labor. Um, actually, Frederick Flick did not have a concentration oh. camp at one of his factories. It was Gunter Quant, who did... The Volkswagen, um, I mean, let's make no mistakes about this. Uh, Friedrich Flick had used tens and tens of thousands of forced enslaved laborers in his steel, coal, and weapons conglomerate. But he never achieved to have a, a sub-concentration camp at one of his factory complexes, or at least not that it had become known today. Gunter Quant did at his battery factories um uh, the, the Porsche uh, Ferdinand Porsche and Anton Pierre did at the Volkswagen factory complex and also the Utkers or did a joint venture where uh, there was um, a subconcentration camp to involve with the building of that labor building of that factory but um it was mainly yeah yeah Friedrich Flick actually tried to get a subconcentration camp you know, not for lack of trying Bill, you know, I mean, he tried, he he tried to get it, but it 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 somehow never it never happened. Even though you know he he controlled the largest privately held steel, coal, and weapons conglomerate in um, uh, in Nazi Germany. So when I watch a movie of World War II and the concentration camps, I'll see scenes where they're working on like they're hammering away at some steel or they're putting together some parts. Is this sort yeah. of these are the companies that are causing that. Like these are the companies where that's why they're working to feed the Nazis' army. Wait, sorry, can you repeat that question? Yeah, that's um, like in movies, I'll see them working yeah. on like machinery and whatnot. These are the companies that these uh Jewish people in these concentration camps are working for. Like when I see the movie of them working hard on this, uh, these are yeah. the companies that are a result of that. Like their response, if it's not for them these people wouldn't be supplying those companies with what they sell to the army. During the war, that was, that was, that was true for, for a large extent. Yes. Much of German uh, labor and German businesses 
you know, exploit. I mean, you can't say that you can't use the word word work because they were okay. forced or they were enslaved. You know, they were coerced, or um, you know, they were forcibly. Yeah, they were they were forced to to work in factories and mines. Gotcha. Okay, and so, so and, and you know, it was an interplay, right? I mean, it was a Nazi regime which initiated this mass coerced labor program and, and enslavement program. But you know, all the German companies willingly accepted that. So, so you're so you're right when you see in those movies, you know, when you see a depiction of that, of 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 men and women and, and children being being enslaved, being forced to work in in German factories and making these products, then then yeah, you know, for a large extent, without them, those products wouldn't have been made. Were there companies that resisted? I mean, I'm sure there were, but were there any standout companies that said no to Hitler and wouldn't go along? No. Oh, no. No, not standout companies. No. I mean, you have these, you have some, a few standout individuals which try to help people, but you didn't have anybody say no because then you, you, you can, you could close up shop. You could, you know, that was that. Bye. So. There's a lot of names that were mentioned in your book, and they each have a different background. For example, who's like who's von Fink? Yeah, so so August von Fink Senior, his father was a co-founder of Munich Re and Allianz, which are the largest insurers and reinsurers in the world today. They also controlled a private bank called Merck Fink, which was later bought by Barclays many decades later. And August von Fink was, you know, Bavaria's richest man. They were based in Munich. And, and, you know, he was an heir, you know, he, his father, when his father died, he was 25 or 26 and he inherited this, you know, one of the largest fortunes in Germany and the supervisory board chairmanship of, of uh, Allianz and Munich Re. And he, um, you know, he, he was already very right wing, quite anti-Semitic. And Hitler tasked him in 1933 to to build this pet project for him called the House of German Art. And he fundraised because he was known as not only as Bavaria's wealthiest man, but also as his, sting, as his stingiest man. So he didn't want to spend any of his own money, Von Fink. So he fundraised about 20 million Reichsmark for the building of that museum, which is still in Munich today. I just came from Munich yesterday. So, you know, the building itself is, is quite imposing. It's, it's, you know, I would say aesthetically it's even quite you know it looks good and um you know uh, he as a thank you he got to arianize the rothschild the private bank uh, which is austria's largest private bank in, in vienna at the time and and the dreyfus bank in in berlin and he got off after the war he got off scot-free as well as like most of my main characters yeah i definitely want to bring up that how they get away with this towards the end but still mm -hmm. talking about like what they get away with. Did any of these businesses help Hitler come to power? Like, because today you can. No. It wasn't until no. after he gained power that. No, it wasn't until after he seized power. I mean, did they help him? Did they help him consolidate his power? Yes. Did they help him come to power? No. Gotcha. Okay, then. Some other people in the story. We mentioned um, Gunther Quant. Well, I almost want to say he had like a rivalry with um, Gobel. Yeah, Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels. He was a famous yes. Nazi uh, minister of propaganda. Okay, so I know that. Um, have you have you ever seen Have you ever seen Inglorious Bastards? Yeah, great movie. 
Yeah, so Goebbels is very prominently in that movie. Man, I haven't seen it in a while, but I think you, I know you who you're talking about. should rewatch it. It's so good. <laughs> oh, my God. I rewatched it uh, after doing the research for this book. It was so much better. I love the um, like Quentin Tarantino endings where it's always different than what really happens, and you see the ending of that movie right. with Hitler. It's true. <laughs> yeah. That's a great one. But um, So the reason I say um, Gobble is in the book, um, Gunther Quant, he was married to Manya Magda. Magda. Yeah, he was married to her, and then she was, and then she left him, and ended up going with Gobbles. Um, yeah, I mean, Gobbles was the was the famous Nazi propaganda minister. He was the number one of the Third Reich. No, sorry, it, the number two or the number three behind Hitler and Goering. So was he in close ties with, say, Quant, or was there a? No, no, there was a massive rivalry between the two because. Günter Kwan's second marriage was to Magda, Magda, who later became the unofficial first lady of the Third Reich. That that marriage, they had one son, Harold. That marriage dissolved because Günter Kwan was a complete workaholic and, you know, didn't wasn't very nice to her. She remarried to Magda to 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 Joseph Goebbels, who was of course one of the rising stars in the Nazi Party and, um, yeah, was one of the most powerful men in the, in the Reich. In terms of like how close these families were and whatnot, there's one example of Hemmler's circle of friends. So were yeah. they all were they all constantly talking to one another? Were they all just independently doing their own thing? It was a good question. I mean, they were like invited to this to this weird group of people, which was basically was like a cover up. For, for Himmler to like support his like esoteric SS hobbies at the SS, for the SS. They were individually invited. Some of them, of course, most of them came from business circles, so they knew each other, but most of them were just there for their own power and, and their own interests, you know. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, just... Because they wanted, to, they, wanted to, they wanted to have ties to the most powerful paramilitary organization in Germany or maybe arguably in the world at that time, you know, which is CSS, of course, Heinrich Himmler, who became the architect of the Holocaust, you know, he, you, they wanted to have proximity to Himmler. Gotcha. So yeah, like he was sent out an infight and because of the proximity, they'd take up the offer. It's very business oriented, all their interactions. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally, it's totally opportunistic. It's totally, uh, expedient, you know, these these people, they're not really interested in each other. They just want security and they just want power. Okay. You mentioned some of what they did before earlier, like what made them bad and how they, how well, how the companies work with the Nazi parties. Something I said I wanted to come back to is how did, like, how did they get off kind of scot-free? Like, how did this court system give them such light sentencing or punishment or what even were these well, light sentences? It's, there was, you know, a decision of the American government in 1947 with the emergence of the Cold War where they, you know, the U.S. was like, we need a strong West Germany as a bulwark against, um, you know, against an encroaching Soviet Union and against communism. And so the Nazis were quickly became a thing of the past. And they started this accelerated handover of, of Nazi sympathizers to um, to the uh, to the government to the government. Sorry, to the German government. And of course, they had zero interest in 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 you know prosecuting millions of fellow compatriots who were 
you know, were guilty of the same crimes and sympathies that they themselves held. So, you know, this, this denazification process, as it was called, was a completely flawed legal process and, and saw most of, um, with the exception of one of my main characters, everybody get off uh, scot-free. Only Friedrich Flick was ended up coming before the Nuremberg, being indicted in war crimes and crimes against humanity for war crimes and, and crimes against humanity at Nuremberg and was convicted but was later released as well on good behavior after five years. If you need a strong economy to stand out against Russia during the Cold War, couldn't they couldn't they have just given these guys the harsh sentences but replaced them like it the yeah, same way America did question. with the Middle East? <laughs> yes, that's a very good question actually. It's a very interesting question. Yeah, they could have replaced them, but of course most of their replacements had also were had also been Nazis or had been complicit with the Nazi regime either. Plus these men had built their companies and they controlled their companies. So you could replace them with other executives or you could ban them from their positions, but then they still controlled the companies, right? You can't, or else they would have made the decision to expropriate them from their companies, like take away their ownership, which was a completely different story. And it also, of course, goes against the capitalist nature of the United States. It makes me think of you can put like Pablo Escobar behind bars or you can do that with like some top gang or mafia members, but they still control, like they still operate what's going on. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and that's exactly what you saw in those years after 1945 when the Third Reich ended. And yeah, you exactly you saw that exactly. So, I mean, it seems odd. It doesn't seem right. Well, how short were these sentences or how short were they? Um, yeah. How short were they? Yeah, I mean, Friedrich Flick was seven years. It would. It ended up. He ended up five years. It was commuted by two years. You know, another very, very famous industrialist, Alfred Krupp, who you know, ThyssenKrupp, going to any elevator and you see ThyssenKrupp, you know, the famous steel conglomerates today, no longer controlled by families though. You know, got twelve years. I think he only ended up serving four or five. Um, yeah, so it was. It was in debt for the industrialists and the executives. It was in debt. That kind of like between five and 10 years or between seven and 12 years. It makes me think of, you're familiar with like Operation Paperclip, I'm sure. So it makes of course. Me, yeah, it makes me think of like that where they've taken the Nazi scientists, but it's almost like an extension for the business side of things. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that stood out that I also wanted to ask about was the Herbert Quantz Media Prize that's now a... Yeah. Yeah, it seems weird to have him sponsor something that's still going on today. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason I wrote the book is having, you know, oh. being shocked about the fact that you have, you know, the Herbert Quant Media Prize or the BMW Foundation Herbert Quant, which, you know, Herbert Quant was was Günter Quant's old, uh, eldest son and, you know, was involved with uh, building a subconcentration camp, had the responsibility over thousands of forced enslaved laborers in Berlin battery factories acquired companies in France, stolen from Jews, used, you know, forced and uh, labor and, and, and prisoners of war at his own private estate. And, you know, he now today, because his, his two youngest children are the controlling shareholders of BMW, you have the BMW Herbert Quant Foundation with, with the perverse motto, inspire responsible leadership in the name of a Nazi war criminal. And you have the Herbert Quant Media Prize, where some of, of, of you know, Germany's most prominent German journalists sit on the board 
you know, award a media prize. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mockery. It's, it's a, it's an insult to journalism and it makes a mockery of, 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 of history as well. It does because also journalism is known for bringing up the truth, bringing up exactly. the evidence or telling us what's happening. Exactly. And now that this seems, I feel like people hear about this history, but how come it wasn't more prominent? Did they do such? Was there a propaganda push, or did how did they whitewash so well that people just forgot? No, these people it? are very powerful families. I mean, these are the equivalent of uh, you know of of, Be of 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 Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, um, the Koch brothers, the Waltons, but then on yeah. a on a European or on a German level, you know, they they're and and even in in, in Germany, even more so than in the U.S. You know, power and authority and hierarchy are, are still more unquestioned. In the U.S., you can, you know, there is more, you can question authority more. There's more, there's a stronger press than, than and, and, and in Germany, they're more, they yield more to authority. So these, these families, which are, of course, or the, Quant, the BMW Quant family are the largest donors, to, 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 to Germany's ruling political party, you know, they, 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 they control BMW, one of, you know, the most famous brands Germany has ever brought forth. Yeah. So yeah, they're very powerful families, so they can engage in this whitewashing. And it's very hard in Germany to call these people out on it. You know, of course I'm not German, so, and I write in English, so it's, 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 it's easier for me in a way to write about it. Well, it wasn't easy. It took me four years, but you know, it's, I don't have to deal with the same worries that German journalists might have writing about this topic. I know in Germany, in like the school system, they're taught a lot about World War II, so they don't repeat history and make the same mistakes. Exactly. This is sort of like a portion of what happened that I don't want to say gets forgotten, but doesn't get as much attention. Yeah. They also, they hide these, these powerful families, hide these histories in plain sight as well. You know, I think there are like two companies. So one like hired a private investigative journalist to dive into their own background. And I want to say like another one came out clean and said, Hey, yeah, this is our history. Like, yeah, I mean, a lot right? of them do it. A lot of them do it, but then they forget about it. And then the public forgets about it and they, they get on to, to whitewash the histories or to hide it somewhere in plain sight still. So I guess the last question is what can, is there anything we could do or is there anything we should do? Cause the people who were responsible for this, they have to be in what, their 80s to 100s if they're still alive? Well, no, it's about the heirs, right? So, you know, what matters is historical transparency. If you want to name, you know, global foundations, media prizes, corporate headquarters after these men that committed war crimes, you should be transparent about their war crimes. And then you can also celebrate their business successes, but you can't just celebrate their business successes say that, you know, Ferry Porsche designed the first Porsche sports car in 1947, or Herbert Quant saved BMW for bankruptcy in 1959, and not, and not, and leave out the, the, the war crimes, you know, so as a consumers, you know, um, at the very least, what we can expe expect is historical transparency from these, from these global companies, you know, and if they don't want to do that, they should rename, um, their foundations or media prizes or um, yeah or, or corporate headquarters nowadays are is there like a bad are there some real big examples of some companies getting almost worshipped even though they have this background in germany 
Yeah, I would say Porsche and Audi, Porsche and BMW are the most. Porsche particularly is is, I would argue the most prominent example, even more so than BMW because the BMW because the Quants didn't control BMW during the Third Reich. They only they only came to control it in 1959. But the Porsche Pierre family controlled Porsche back during the Third Reich and controls it today. And actually, it's going to be a huge IPO later in this year where they're going to spin off Porsche from the Volkswagen Group and they're going to list it as on a stock exchange for billions. Gotcha. All right. Well, David DeYoung, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Bill. Two real quick questions. So one, yeah. off the top of your head, can you name as many companies that are part of this book or that have this history so a consumer or audience member listening knows, oh, this name, this name, this name? Sure. I mean, the Quants control the BMW Group. BMW Group is BMW, Rolls-Royce, Mini. The Porsche PRs control uh, the Volkswagen Group, which encompasses Volkswagen, uh, Porsche, Bentley, Audi, Seat, Skoda, uh, Lamborghini. Lamborghini. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Can't buy that one either. <laughs> uh, the Ryman's control Panera Bread, uh, Krispy Kreme, um, Snapple, Seven Up, um, you know, countless of American uh, American consumer companies: Pete's Coffee, Kirk, Green Mountain, um, Einstein's Bros Bagels. Well, the one thinks they are investors. They probably they and the others. Their the assets are mainly in Europe. And the flicks also invest in private wealth. So I would say those of the six, is, that's the main ones. Gotcha. Recently, the only thing of that I've been buying is Snapple. So I love Snapple. <laughs> yeah. I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And any final message you'd like to tell the audience? Yeah, you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at David Young. Um, and um, yeah, enjoy reading Nazi Billionaires. And that was David DeYoung. To find more information about him or read his book, Nazi Billionaires, you can click a link in the description. If you're listening through the radio, I highly recommend you check out the podcast. A lot more information, follow on Instagram or Twitter at PodcastTheWay. Or you can go to PodcastTheWay.com. Don't forget to give a five-star review, rating, share. Every little bit helps. This is FM 91.7, WHUS Stores at the top of the hour. And also, FM 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston, at the top of the hour. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. <laughs>